Well, good morning. My name is Matt. I'm one of the elders in training here at Faith Bible Fellowship Church, or as we like to refer to ourselves as the uh, JV elders. Uh, All joking aside, though, it was a joy to see Alex uh, be installed as an elder uh, the last uh, few weeks ago. Uh, Alex has served our church faithfully uh, over many years uh, and leading worship, uh, so it was a joy to see him go from uh, JV to varsity, if you will. Uh, But uh, all joking aside, uh, I do want to open us with prayer uh, before we uh, get into the book of Philippians this morning. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you uh, that we can gather this morning in your house with our brothers and sisters in Christ to worship you and your son Jesus through the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray that as we uh, study the book of Philippians this morning, Father, we pray that you would use these words to convict us, to strengthen us, to challenge us, to be more like your son. Father, we pray that you would uh, speak through me, that the message would be clear, uh, because these are your words from your holy scripture. Father, we thank you again for all of the work that you have done and continue to do in our lives. We thank you most importantly, for sending Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. We thank you that he rose again, and we have a hope and a future because of that. And we look forward to life forever with you in the new heavens and the new earth. And we pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So this morning, uh, we're going to continue our parallel sermon series in Philippians. Uh, last summer, Pastor, last August it was, Pastor Ricardo Uh, Alex and myself had started a series in Philippians kind of as a parallel series uh, to the 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 other sermon series that we're going through at this time so I know it's been a long time ago August well I can barely remember what happened in August Uh, and I know so it was a long time ago and I know that there are some people here uh, that have been visiting for a while who may may, maybe weren't even in attendance in August so real quick Chapter one, verse uh, chapter one of Philippians. I'm just going to give you a quick recap. So Paul opens his letter with the traditional greeting and thanks to God for the church. Sorry, one quick note. I forgot. There are Bibles. If you didn't bring one, there are Bibles in the pew in front of you. Uh, so feel free to open that to uh, page 980. Uh, that's where we'll be. Uh, the text is for this morning. If you don't have a Bible, that's yours to take and and keep and uh, take home with you. So, sorry, back to the recap. So Paul opens his letter with a traditional greeting and thanks uh, to God for the church in Philippi. He then encourages them to stay the course. After that, he tells them that his imprisonment is being used by God to further the gospel. Paul then declares, probably one of his more famous statements, a very quotable statement, that to live is Christ and to die is gain. So we chose this book because the world is looking more terrible by the minute. When we look at the world around us, we see darkness. And we as Christians want to ground our joy in the truth of God's word. The theme of Philippians is joy. And that's what we wanted to give to the church as a gift from the book of Philippians is the joy that we have in Christ Uh, And the joy that he was writing to the church in Philippi, even though he was in prison, he was joyful for what they were doing. But having said all of that, this is the book of Philippians, this is the book about joy, the theme is joy. Uh, Today's sermon uh, is going to be a heavy one. 
So please stay with me because there is glorious hope at the end. I wanted to look back at chapter 1 and see how it ends. I kind of stopped with his phrase of to live as Christ and to die as gain. But uh, verse 29 in chapter 1 says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So I wanted to look back at how chapter 1 ends. Paul says that we not only believe in Jesus, but also suffer for his sake. The life of the Christian includes suffering. This world is full of suffering. Our nation has reached a new low the last few weeks where media outlets are more concerned about spinning a narrative than telling the truth about the heartbreaking murder of six people in Nashville. The lies that continually bombard us from the news, the government and social media, the wickedness in our culture that worships demonic powers and has sacrificed multiple generations to its false god. The blatant sexual perversion of this nation that is coming for our children because they can't reproduce their own. It is full of sin and selfishness, individuality and identity politics, and the militant woke culture is seeking to destroy Christianity because it hates it. But a movement that is woke cannot destroy those who are awake and alive. Lest we forget, we're not ignorant of our own status. Those that have been saved by Christ, we were once dead in our sins. We were once covered in worms and maggots laying in a mass grave. And it was Jesus who reached down and raised us from death to life. He has made us alive and he has called us to suffer for his sake. That is how chapter 1 closes. Being called to suffer for Christ in a world that hates us. But we turn to chapter 2. And chapter 2 opens with this poetic quality. Verses 5 through 11, we'll get to those later, are actually referred to as the majestic hymn of Christ. And you can hear it in the verses as it starts low and starts to build and crescendos at the very end. So I want to take a minute. I want to read the passage again. And then we'll start. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, doing nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only on his own interest, but on the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The theme this morning of, our, of the sermon 
is suffering, unity, and Christ the victor. So we kind of covered uh, the suffering part in the introduction. So in light of all of this suffering, I want to look at three questions. How shall we live? Can I see an example? Which kind of reminds me of a Jeopardy category, but anyway. Uh, And is it worth it? How shall we live? Can I see an example? And is it worth it? So the portion we're studying this morning is a plea for unity. Paul is acting the part of a loving father who is begging his children to get along. As a father myself, and there are many fathers in this room, that is often the struggle to get the children to get along. Love one another, be kind to one another, and get along. So question one is how shall we live? The answer to this question is highly offensive to the world and is completely countercultural to the status of our current country. Looking at verses, the first section here in chapter 2, so if, if there is any encouragement in Christ, he basically points out four things. Encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, and any affection and sympathy. So the encouragement in Christ That is the comfort that we have in Christ. For those that have been saved, for those that have the Holy Spirit living in them, we receive comfort from Christ. And we are to comfort one another with that same comfort. We contrast that with what the world offers. The world demands a cause. So we have comfort in Christ. The world demands a cause. The world wants to know what cause are you fighting for? What soapbox are you standing on? Who are you beating down with whatever militant cause we're forcing on everybody at this moment. So that's a huge distinction, that we are called to live differently, to have encouragement in Christ. The next one, comfort from love, that we've received that love from Christ and we're commanded to love others with that Christ. We contrast that with the world that demands affirmation of their perversion. You will acknowledge me for who I self-identify as. That is the message the world has right now, and that is in direct contrast to what Christ has called us to do and to live as the church. We have the participation in the Spirit. The world demands participation of the demonic spirit of this age. We have the Holy Spirit that's living in us, that empowers us to do all of the things that have been listed before this. That encouragement in Christ, that comfort from love, comes out of the participation in the Holy Spirit who strengthens us and equips us and challenges us and encourages us to live as Jesus would have us live. And any affection and sympathy. We are to have affection and sympathy for one another. As brothers and sisters in Christ... That is how we set ourselves apart from the world, is that affection and sympathy and care and love for one another. The only thing that the world has to offer is a demand of submission by force. You will acknowledge what we say you acknowledge. You will uh, participate in what we want you to participate. You will affirm the perversion that we have found and created for ourselves. That is what the world demands, and that is separate and distinct from what God has us to live. So these, three thi- these four things that Paul lays out 
are the things that he wants the church in Philippi to be known for. Encouragement in Christ, comfort from love, participation in the Spirit, and any affection and sympathy. Finishing out the rest of those verses then, he says, do nothing. So he gives that as uh, what they should be living by. And then he says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. God has given us all individual gifts. We have physical abilities. We have mental abilities that are different from other people. We have emotional abilities that are different from others. And we have spiritual gifts that are given to us by God. When God's Spirit, when we are saved and His Spirit lives in us, His Spirit gives us spiritual abilities that we're to use for the encouragement of other brothers and sisters in Christ and for the growth of the church. So he wants us, Paul is telling the church in Philippi, to be unified, to unify themselves. Out there is darkness. Out there is the world, and the world only offers darkness. But what he wants inside the church is unity around the light of Jesus Christ. So do nothing from rivalry or conceit. Whatever giftings, abilities you have, Use them in conjunction with other brothers and sisters in the church so that the church can grow and the gospel can go out. That is what Paul is telling the Philippians to do. And that is what we're being told to do as well as Christians living in America in 2023. If you don't know what your spiritual giftings are, and a lot of people don't, please go talk to Pastor Ricardo or Pastor Wes or any of the elders. They would love to kind of help you walk through what giftings you have, what spiritual gifts God has given you. We're always looking for volunteers at the church. That's kind of a little plug for uh, volunteerism at the church. But we want people to serve in their gifting. Uh, That's when we receive joy because we're working out of the gifting that God has given us. So we don't want service at the church to be a drudgery. We don't want it to be this duty that we have to perform. We want you to serve out of the joy and the gifting that God has given you. So if you don't know what your giftings are, please, please see one of the church leaders, and they'll help you uh, identify what your spiritual gifts are and help you get plugged into a place to serve here at the church so that we can all be a blessing to one another and we can see the church grow and the gospel go out. So we... As we do all of that, we are working together as the light to push back darkness. The darkness that's creeping in, that we see everywhere. We, as the church, need to push back that darkness to spread the gospel and the light of Christ to a world that desperately needs it. So he lays out all of these things to let each of you, not only of his own interests, but also the interest of others, have this mind in yourselves, which is also in Jesus Christ. So that statement there in verse 4, let each of you look not only on his own interests, but the interest of others, that is humility being laid out for us in these verses, that God wants us to be humble. This is a unity that we have as the church, but it's a unity out of humility. And humility is not thinking less of yourselves, it is thinking you're of yourself less. Like we don't have to beat ourselves down and try and walk around with this you know, hunched over, uh, humble appearance. The point is that we walk in victory and use the gifts that God has given us. And as we're thinking of other people more, 
That is what humility is. And he gives us an example uh, here in the text. But our, our desire, our goal, and what Christ wants us to do is to serve others and do it through humility and to think of others more than we think of ourselves. And if we can't love our brothers and sisters in Christ, how will we be able to love our enemies? It starts here. It's that love that we have for everyone, brothers and sisters in this church. We're we're developing that love for others here so that we can be effective in loving others. If I can't love my family, how am I going to love my enemies? So we start here. And Christ has given us the power through the Holy Spirit to do that. So this leads us into the second question. All right, so this is what we're supposed to do. That sounds great. It sounds uh, very challenging, almost impossible, because we're supposed to be accomplishing all of this in the midst of suffering, in the midst of a world that hates us. So can I see an example of that? Yes. Paul gives us the great example of all time. Paul gives us the example of Jesus Christ. The text says, starting in verse 6, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus, this text tells us that he was equal with God, but did not see it as a thing to be grasped. There's two types of grasping. There is the grasping after something that you don't have, like playing flag football out here, the teenagers do every Sunday, grabbing after a flag. That is a grasping. But there is another grasping. There's a grasping of a holding on that you already have. That is what this text is talking about. Christ wasn't grabbing after equality with God. He had it. He was equal with God. So this phrase means that he wasn't going to exploit his divinity for personal gain. That Christ was coming down as a humble servant to serve humanity. He humbled himself to become a servant. We want to clarify just one thing there a little bit because it says that he made himself of nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Just to clarify, the likeness of man is the image of God. That when God created man and woman, they were created in God's image. We are image bearers. So it wasn't this drastic fall for him to become a man. We are image bearers of Christ. What they're talking about in this text, the humility is the fact that he came as a lowly servant. He didn't descend from Asgard with the body of a Greek god or flowing blonde hair and a mighty battle axe. The point is that being a man wasn't the humility. It was the way that he came that embodied humility. He didn't come in the body of a Greek god. He was born of the Virgin Mary and made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. He looked like everybody else. He looked like any other average Jewish carpenter of his day. The texts in the New Testament and the Gospels that talk about when the Pharisees are trying to capture him and he kind of slips away in the crowd, it may have been some type of supernatural 
uh, camouflage that, he, or it may have just been he put his cloak up and walked away because he looked like everybody else. He came as a servant, as a carpenter, and humble. So not only did his humility start at his birth, that humility carried all the way through his life, and the text shows us that, that he humbled himself to death on a cross. Many great leaders have died valiantly for their causes. Maximus, in the movie Gladiator, was a Roman general who was betrayed, kept his promise, and died valiantly in the middle of the Colosseum after avenging his wife and son's murderer. William Wallace, another movie, another warrior leader who was publicly tortured and killed, but as he was dying, he valiantly cried out, Freedom! Ironically, that became the rallying cry for the army of Scotland, and they fought like warrior poets to earn their freedom from the occupying English armies. Wallace's death was a rally cry for freedom. And there are many more examples of men who have died valiant deaths for their cause. But death on the Roman cross was not that kind of death. It's fitting that we're studying this passage the Sunday after Easter. At Easter, we often talk about Christ's resurrection and we celebrate that Christ rose from the dead. But Good Friday was awful. The Romans had perfected execution. Death on a Roman cross was incredibly painful. So painful that they had to invent a new word to describe it. We get our word excruciating from that Latin word. The crucifixion didn't start on the cross. The Roman crucifixion process started at the public flogging of Jesus, of any criminal. Where they would be publicly stretched out on a post and whipped with a whip that has metal and steel balls in it, tearing flesh off of the back. The whole point of it was to tenderize the back so that they could die quickly. Most men didn't even survive that. Most crucifixions ended with the flogging. They never even made it to the cross. That's how brutal this was. The next step was that they would be forced to carry the crossbeam of the cross to the place of execution. And then once they got there, the Roman soldiers could crucify them any way they wanted. Any way that that Roman soldier thought would be the most painful, the most humiliating, the most excruciating way was the way that those criminals in, the, in Bible times were crucified. Some were crucified backwards, some were crucified upside down, some were crucified however they felt they needed to be crucified. And the death was slow and painful. Many men would hang for days before they died. Every breath, their raw backs sliding up and down that wooden post behind them. And they were often crucified at eye level. We often see pictures of the cross depicted up high. It's more likely that Christ was crucified a little bit closer to ground level. And the reason they did that was so that everybody could walk by and look them right in the eye and jeer at them and spit on them and curse them. This was what Christ did for us. When I read these passages and I study that, 
there's this over, overwhelming sense of like survival guilt. I don't know how else to describe it. Like I get to come here and sit in air conditioning and sing praises to God with my brothers and sisters in Christ and enjoy beautiful sunshine. And all of those things are because Christ went through what he went through. We have joy and freedom and hope because of what Christ did for us. William Wallace may have cried out freedom on a horizontal cross, but Christ actually accomplished freedom on a Roman cross. Christ accomplished freedom from the power of sin and freedom from God's wrath for those who believe in him. We don't have to fight to earn our freedom. It's been given to us. For the unsaved that are here this morning, Pastor Toby Sumter kind of describes it this way. But the cross of Christ was a foul and bloody spectacle because it is for the foul and bloody. Christ didn't come to save the healthy. He came to save rotting corpses. All you have to do is look at the world and realize the only thing it offers is lies, hatred, and death. The peace that we all desperately need can only come through Christ. The peace of Christ only comes through God's grace. And that grace can't be quantified. God's grace was the only son, his only son beaten, covered in his own bodily fluids, and hanging on a Roman torture device. That type of grace is too high to count. It is costly, and that grace was for you. Repent of your sins, confess that Jesus is Lord, and believe that he is raised from the dead, and you will be saved. So that leads us to our last question. It's, that is awful. Awful. But is it worth it? Yes. Absolutely yes. This text ends with the crescendo of the majestic hymn to Christ. It picks up there in verse 9 where we stopped. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed him on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We could end the sermon there. That is victory. That is what Christ is doing now because of his obedient death on the cross. Like I said, you can hear the crescendo building all the way to the end, and you can hear it in the words that every knee, every tongue will confess and every knee will bow, not only in heaven and on earth, but under the earth. Every single realm throughout all of creation, heaven, earth, all of the demonic powers and principalities that exist under the earth, all of them will bow the knee to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He wins, we win because he won, and that is the hope that we have to look forward to. Victory is Christ's, and he has won it. You can bow the knee by choice because you've been saved and we worship him willingly, or you will be forced to bow the knee. One way or another, everyone in this world who has ever lived 
and every demon that has ever existed will all be forced to bow the knee to Jesus Christ. He wins, and we win because he wins. You were once, to those that are saved here this morning, those of us that have been saved by Jesus Christ, you were once that dead and rotting corpse, but you've been saved. The plea in this text is to look like Jesus, to be humble as he was humble, to be unified with Jesus' siblings, and to use your gifts to push back darkness. The days are dark, but this moment right now is ripe for the gospel. The enemy is at the door, and we need men who will stand and fight and push back darkness, and we need women who will support them in the fight. John Calvin is in his institutes says this regarding the victory of Christ. Since we must acquire victory through Christ, God declares to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15, in general terms, that the woman's offspring is to prevail over the devil. Part of the believer's knowledge of God recognizes that even though unclean spirits may combat believers, ambush them, invade their peace, beset them in combat, and also often weary them, rout them, terrify them, and sometimes wound them, yet they will never vanquish or crush them. Christ has humbled Satan, crushed his head, and assures his elect of their victory in the end. They live relying on that victory. No matter what trials or suffering we face, Christ has already won. His victory is our victory, and he sits at the right hand of God, the Father, ruling and reigning and interceding for his brothers and sisters. This morning, as we do every week, we will continue our worship service by celebrating communion and the Lord's Supper and remembering what Christ has done and celebrating what he is doing right now. And one day, every knee will bow by choice or by force, and all of humanity will worship Jesus. Father, we thank you for the words from Philippians this morning. We thank you for this text that convicts us and strengthens us, tells us how to live, and gives us an example to follow. We thank you that this text also ends with Christ as the victor, that he wins, he has won, he is winning, and we win because he is winning. Father, we pray that you, we, you would use those words to strengthen us as we leave this place today, as we go about our business this week, as we engage in the workplace and go to school and teach and live as you would have us to live. Father, help us to be more like your son, Jesus. Help us to be an example to others of what Christ has done and what you're doing in our hearts and lives through the power of your Holy Spirit. We thank you and praise you again for sending your Son. We thank you that he came in humility and obedience. We thank you that that obedience carried him all the way to the cross. And we thank you and praise you that he is victorious over sin, over death, and over all. We worship you this morning, Father, and your Son, Jesus, through the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.